0: Hey y'all, it's Mandy. Before we talk about this week's episode, I want to say shout out to the patrons. Y'all are the reason I'm still doing this. I could do it alone. But it's so much better to run with people who share your vision, share your values, and see the importance of the work you're doing. So if you're interested in all the premium content, hearing about the questions and answers, or even being a part of our live patron chats, check out my Patreon. It's under at Mandy K. Part, or you can search for Restorative Grief with Mandy K. Part and find it that way. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy K. Part. You are listening to episode 59, titled Human Flourishing with Josh Scott. Josh is the lead pastor at Grace Point Church, a progressive Christian church in Nashville, Tennessee. Our conversation today is coming out of a sermon he gave a while back about how we can approach prayer differently when we've experienced loss or confusion in our faith, and I loved this conversation because prayer and language itself are such powerful ways to move through confusion and loss, and Josh's insight on how humans can continue to flourish through grief is officially one of my favorites. So let's get to it. Well, hello, Josh. How are you today?
1: Hey, I'm doing okay. It's great to be with you.
0: Thank you so much. I know that restorative grief is a very important project to me. And so I love bringing new voices from all the different angles, not just the world of grief support um, onto the show. So before we get too into it, why don't you take a minute and just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are?
1: Yeah, well, um, I am among other things. I am the lead pastor at Grace Point Church in Nashville, which is a progressive Christian community in uh, right there in Tennessee. Um, I'm also a parent. I have five kids um, who keep me quite busy. My wife and I have been together for, I believe, 17 years this year, but with five kids, it's hard to know. And... um, Yeah, I'm just trying to, in my work, whether it's through writing or speaking or just meeting people for lunch or coffee or whatever, trying to help people reimagine, reframe, and reclaim their uh, faith from a progressive Christian lens, if that's a thing they want to do. Uh, I want to be able to help walk them through that.
0: I think that's such a meaningful qualification too, if that's something you want to do, because in this show and these conversations that we host, there are so many people who are any end of the spectrum, whether it's people who don't carry a faith at all, people who are very consider themselves to be quite religious and all the gambit in between, and then grief gets to intermingle with all of that. And so I am really excited to hear what you have to say today about that for people who are not necessarily certain where they fall or where, where to go when grief pops up in its own right, and their faith suddenly isn't to them what it was once upon a time, creating those, you know, those torrents of secondary grief. And so um, my first question for you actually is, could you just describe what you mean by when you say a progressive church for people who might not be familiar?
1: Yeah. So when we talk about being a progressive church, um, some of what I mean is that in our approach to faith, and we're a Christian community, so our approach to Christian faith we approach it in a sense and in a way that is open to transformation with the understanding that we haven't figured it all out, that there's more to learn and that and sometimes also, I like guess, whatever the word God means, that reality is always pulling us forward and inviting us into unknown territory. Uh, and so we just want to be open to that. We want we want to be open to learning. We want to be open to changing our mind, which is actually what the word repent means. It doesn't mean feel really terrible about yourself. It means, to change your mind. We wanna be in regular practice of changing our mind when we need to. It doesn't mean we don't have convictions. It doesn't mean we don't have values. It doesn't mean we don't have things that we would even use the word belief for. But it means that primarily um, protecting doctrines and dogmas isn't what we exist to do. And when I try to describe to people sort of the lens that I use, you know, uh, I would say human flourishing is my lens. And so what I want to do is, and I think this is in line with the message of Jesus and really every other tradition in the world, right, in its most beautiful form is trying to help human beings become fully alive, flourishing, healthy, whole human beings. And so I hope in our little corner of the world and corner of the internet, with our online community, I hope that's what we're doing.
0: You just nailed exactly what I love to try and bring to grief work because it's the conversation no one wants to have, right? Nobody's interested in really sitting down and unpacking really heavy, big emotions. And the purpose of it, however, is to find a way to be fully alive in the middle of all the misalignment that comes with loss and with grief. And so I love that that's the precipice of where you're starting from because it's such a lofty goal, but it's a humble and very open-ended goal as well. So Thank you for giving us that context. It's so meaningful. So where would you go? If you have that in the back of your mind as your foundation, where would you go for someone that walks in the doors and says, Hey, I'm grieving and I have no idea what to do because my faith doesn't make any sense. Where do I even begin? If what I thought was true is suddenly falling apart in the face of significant loss in my life.
1: Yeah. So I think there are two things there. One, is one of the things I always tell people is I am trained to be a pastor. And I've done that for 25 years. That's what I've given my life to. So when it comes to theology and unpacking theology and spirituality and the Bible and context and trying to help you maybe come back around to understanding the Bible differently, uh, understanding the Bible contextually, understanding your faith differently, wrestling with those big things, I'm pretty qualified to do that. In terms of being a counselor or a therapist, I have no training in that really at all. And so my job then is to say, I I have people I recommend. We have people who, that we have either we, I know them or I've researched them and know that they are people we would trust to say, here's somebody in our community, new, new to our community, even who is processing. Can you help them on that end? And then I'm happy to be a resource and a sounding board and a conversation partner in terms of theology and the Bible and all that sort of thing. Because I think those are two really important things, but I don't think that one person, unless you happen to be trained as a pastor and as a therapist, that's a whole different than you're, you're, totally. <laughs> you're killing it in the world. But for, for those of us who aren't that, um, I just want to make sure that I'm putting people in the place where they can get the best care. Yeah. Uh, and, and growing up, that's never what I, I mean. It was always the pastor was going to be also the counselor. And none of the pastors I really knew doing that had any qualifications to do it. They were just giving their opinion.
0: I love that you, I kind of set you up because I figured you would go that direction because that is one of those big conversations that we have to address for people all the time. We've got this idea that our pastor is the end all be all the the pinnacle of wisdom for what we're pursuing or where we're going in life. And it puts such an unfair responsibility on you as a pastor to then hold that that emotional space for us while also trying to hold that spiritual side of of conversation, the intellectual, and just the, even the gut level understanding. So I thank you for referring people and for articulating that so clearly because pastors deal with enough. <laughs> you have enough of your plate to navigate and like teach your people. So what would you do then? Let's say you've got someone that's like, yeah, great. I'm seeing a counselor, but here's my big theological questions. What do I do about... For example, prayer, I know you have an amazing understanding of how to help someone reconnect with their prayer life, or um, even just their practice of prayer and their understanding when maybe they've grown up or been in this present day culture where prayer has become somewhat transactional. How would you help someone approach prayer with a new lens?
1: You know, one of the problems is the way, like the way I grew up being taught about prayer. And to give you a little bit of context, I grew up my first 11 years of life as a free will Baptist. And then uh, my grandfather was our pastor. And then uh, he passed away when I was 11 in a church business meeting uh, after being told he was the problem and should go away. So that you know, when people when people ask me, when did your faith begin to shift? It's like, well, I was eleven and I was in the room Let and that me happened. Tell
0: you. oh man. Yeah.
1: So uh, when I speak about this sort of thing, it's not out of like the realm of theory. It's fully out of the realm of practice. That what I was told prayer was, and eventually we became liberals and went to the Southern Baptist Church. Um, if that <laughs> gives you context for my upbringing, uh, but you know that. For me, prayer was, you know, if you pray for things and you're a good person, you, you have the right beliefs, you go to church on Sunday, you do the right things, God answers your prayer. Ask and you shall receive. Well, we didn't receive when, when that happened. And as a pastor for, you know, two decades, I've walked through time and time again, people who were asking for not just trivial things, right? Like it's when people say they got a great parking spot outside of Target or Walmart, and like God did it, but then we have world hunger and we have climate change and we have a global pandemic and we have the everyday needs of people who aren't getting enough to eat and they aren't, you know, their loved ones are passing away in unjust ways. And so if, if prayer really is just this, I line all the things up and ask God and God gives me, it's like this cosmic slot machine or a bending machine where I put in the right amount of change and I get the right thing. What I'm What I'm finding is that for me, that just didn't line up. And I started noticing in the people I was meeting with and talking to, like their experiences, that just didn't line up. So I think where I would begin is to just name the validity of the problem that you are carrying around lots of questions and lots of issues and doubt around prayer, and it's because you were given a specific way to see it, and as it turns out, it doesn't function in that way. And the way it's typically met in a lot of circles is to say, well, if, it, if God didn't do the thing you asked for, it's because you didn't have the right beliefs or you didn't have enough faith or you didn't ha- you know, ask in the right way or you didn't have enough people praying. That's the one that always gets me too. It's like, we need everybody praying. What is the quota? Are you telling me that God is waiting on it? Like, well, I really needed a hundred people praying and you got 99, so I'm just not gonna cure you. Like, I just can't believe that's actually how this thing works. Right. But what that does is I think what humans need is like to be able to be healed from shame. And so much of what religious context ends up putting back on people, it's just like a shame cycle where you just keep being dragged through the mud shame wise and you're the problem. It's not that the system is the problem or the way you were taught it was the problem or that we think this thing is a thing and it. In this way. And it's not, this is not how it works. No, it's you. It's your fault. So when people are already struggling, what do we do? We meet them. And instead of seeing them and, and acknowledging their pain and seeking to walk with them, we just heap shame on them.
0: Right. Yeah. I like to point out how shame turns into shoulds and mm-hmm. we become these versions of ourselves that have so many unrealistic expectations that we would never place on anyone else. But in the middle of grief, in the middle of loss, in the middle of confusion, whatever form it's taking, you're absolutely right that shame is at the center and the core of it. And you see it physically in people, right? They come to you and all of a sudden their head's stuck low and their eyes shift down. And it's as if you can just see this heaviness physically pulling them toward the ground when it would serve them so much differently if they were in a position across from someone who says, Hey, you can look up and keep eye contact. Like there's nothing preventing you from accessing your faith practice right now. There's nothing between you and God. Whatever you are holding on to, your grief can't separate you. Um,
1: there's like no shame and a break. Like, so when people come to me and they're, you know, uh, in our community, we meet lots of people who are on the way out. You know, Grace Point is their last stop. To, to joining what John Shelby Spong called the Church Alumni Association. <laughs> um, which I think is a great way to put it. And, but, but you know, they'll say things like, um, I know I should read my Bible, or I know I should pray. And my first response is maybe you shouldn't. If those things are sources of pain, maybe you take a break and maybe you find other practices. And maybe, you know, I, I mean, I'm one of those pastors who, maybe one of the few ones who will say, maybe you never need to pick up the Bible again, and that's the healthiest thing for you. There's no shame in that. Christians existed without the Bible for hundreds of years. You can be okay. There are other ways. If if, if God is not so big that God can communicate with you outside of words printed on a page, then perhaps we're all doing something that isn't worth our time. <laughs>
0: right. Right. I love that you said that because you're making such big, bold statements, which to me are affirmation, but I know there are so many people who have never heard that level of intentionality directed towards an individual when it comes to faith practices. So the idea of setting prayer aside, setting the Bible aside resources, even, or gosh, I really love the idea of setting aside, like the prayer circle, like your prayer chain, like, who are you going to for prayer now, girl, you're going for gossip. So maybe setting it aside is a really good thing to do for you right now. So what would you church
1: attendance, right? Like I I, I, I'm one of those like I I think that sometimes the best thing people can do is take a break. Yeah. And I think that there are pastors all over the world who are trying to convince people to stay in their church when the healthy thing would be for them to be able to. And it may be that they pause and realize, I think I want to go. I think I want to go back. I want to be a part of it. But I think true pastoral care in this, in this moment we're in isn't trying to protect your system. It's actually trying to care for people. And we have a ton of people who are processing spiritual grief and trauma and they don't need us angling for what's best for us and our institutions. They need us working and advocating on their behalf for them to do the thing that's healthiest
0: for them. Yeah. Well, and I think that goes back to what you said in the beginning. I'm not a counselor. I'm not here to bring you that level of mental health support. I'm here to support your spiritual growth and understanding that, that level of ability to disconnect the whole self, right? The sense of a person being able to get everything from you. It's really a model of running church or just doing church. I don't really love that phrase, but, um, it's a model that recognizes there is an inherent lack within the system, that it's not the solution for all the things. And I think that that's true of prayer. I think that that's true of our faith texts, whatever that looks like, our gurus, whomever we've placed on a pedestal before us is going to eventually fail us and fall apart. So I'm curious, what would you, what are some of the techniques and things do you recommend for people if they're saying like, Hey, I think prayer, I need to take a break from prayer and from the Bible, but I still want to find a way to experience my faith. What are some things that you've seen others start to do that have been great ideas for them?
1: You know, one thing's not new. And, I, and of course I grew up again in traditions that weren't really liturgical at all. And so the idea of reading a prayer written by somebody else in my free will and Southern Baptist upbringing was just tantamount to laziness. Like you couldn't come up with your own thing and you wrote it down mm-hmm. beforehand. Like the spirit wasn't leading you as
0: uh-huh. if the
1: spirit can only lead you on the spot.
0: Shame, um, shame, shame. Right. Yeah.
1: And, and, but I was in seminary and we, in this one class I had, we had this like morning devotion before each class. Right. And this one person got up and said, Told this really moving story about a time in his life when he went through some really hard things that just made the idea of him forming words feel impossible. And he had this really beautiful line that I'll never, I don't remember anything else he said, but I remember this. He said, When I could no longer pray, I let the church pray for me. And he talked about just finding these prayers that had been written hundreds or thousands of years ago, that in some, whether it was just lines or the whole thing, that put words to what he was feeling. Mm. And I, so I think that's a, right. That's a practice. Like we find, and it doesn't have to be the Bible and it doesn't have to be prayers written by other people. I, every time I read a poem by Mary Oliver, I feel like.
0: You, you have know, gone to church. <laughs>
1: I've gone to church. Like she has yeah. in so many ways spoken to the very thing that yeah. I'm struggling with at the moment. And so sometimes it's letting other people put words on things for us. It's realizing that when we're struggling, I mean, there's this great line in the book of Romans where the writer Paul talks about how when we don't know what to say, the Spirit of God like uh, 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 like groans for us and prays yes. for us. I think some of the way that happens is in the people around us who we're we're embracing their words and their words are holding us up and giving us, you know comfort and and we're finding compassion and healing in their words. And so I think part of it's that. it's it's being attuned to all the ways. That the words we need, maybe they're not in us. They probably are. We just can't access them because of what we're going through. But I bet they're around us. And it's being willing to allow other people at times to carry the load of forming the words and you just being able to be nourished and lifted up by them. And I I just think that's a beautiful experience when somebody else, when they say the thing and you're like, yeah, that's exactly what, what I would have said if I could have found the words.
0: Yes. Borrowing language, whether it's from a new framework of understanding or just a new teaching series or just a new writer or musician that you've never heard before. I mean, music's a perfect example of that, right? Where someone finally puts to words or to paper the the thought or the experience you've been feeling and not known how to express. It's that is a, it's a point of flourishing. It's like a recognition of interconnectedness where you don't feel so alone.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's the thing in this work. I get all the time that people are so overwhelmed and often to the point of tears when they like, when they come and experience one of our gatherings for the first time, because they're in a room full of people who are essentially saying, yeah, I know me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've, I know exactly where that, and you're also in a room full of people who are where you know. There are people who are where you are, people who have been there, people who are. And, and so there's something about that deeply human thing, that that sense of I'm with people who know what it's like. I without, mean, that's what grief groups do, right? Like yeah, it's people I was just going to say the thing.
0: exactly. Without yeah. the pretense of I've gone through this, so let me teach you what you need and how to do it. With it's more of the, I hear you, I see you, and I'm here to stand alongside you as a resource and as someone else who has experienced and lived through a lot of what you're experiencing. Because at the same time, we could have the same loss. Like everyone in your family lost your grandfather that day, lost the same human, but didn't lose the same person to them. It was a different relationship. And so walking people through... Their especially their faith grief, their grief of their loss of understanding of what they hold on to, or even foundationally who they've been. It's such a complicated journey. So I love that there's a, that that's the atmosphere that you're cultivating at your church, because that's one thing that I have found in my work, because I do a lot of work going, talking to churches and talking with people about how to be effective grief supporters as a community in a church setting without offering platitudes and scriptures and saying, okay, cool. Are you done? Cause the children's ministry is short-staffed and you keep saying that you'll be back next week, but like there's a thousand five-year-olds and there's no one, you know, keeping the monkeys in line. So have you, is there ever been a time in your 25 years of pastoring where that has not, where you've witnessed the opposite being true, where you've been in ministry and witnessing grief, just being dismissed or going sideways? And how have you handled that?
1: Well, you know, I think, you know, I started when I was like sort of preaching when I was like 16, 17. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I, I've been in church leadership before I should have been, if that makes sense. Like when I had no experience of any kind. (laughs) I mean, the only qualifications in my upbringing is that you had a sense of calling and that you were male, sadly. yeah, It didn't matter what you knew. It didn't matter if you'd been educated. It was just like, Hey, you showed up, you're willing to do some things. And I'll never forget this one moment where, um, I was probably 19 because I was the interim pastor at the church at the time. And um, a friend of ours, somebody who was a serving at the church, lost their grandmother. When, I, when they came back from, you know, they'd, been, they'd gone away to the funeral and they'd come, come home. And it was the first time I'd seen them. And I said, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. And he said to me, oh, it's not, it's fine. You know, she's with Jesus and she's healed and she's all good. Like we're celebrating for her. We're so happy for her. And I knew he was close to her. Like this wasn't just like I've not seen this person in twenty years, and you know, um, yeah, it's sad, but it's but it's okay. It was, oh, you're being taught by a system that to be a truly faithful person is to minimize your pain. I've seen that, and I've seen I've seen the way you know, countless times where people have thought that the spiritual thing to do is be okay. But it's it's sort of one of those things like you can sweep stuff, you can sweep it under the rug all day long. It doesn't disappear. And people end up caring, not just in their like emotions, but, but that ends up translating into the body yes. and it actually affects your physicality. I mean, grief is heavy, not just metaphorically, it's literal. And so, you know, I've, I've seen that. I've seen the church teach people that true faithfulness is, I'm actually in a series of, of sermons right now, at our church called unhelpful where, I'm trying to just take phrases that people say when bad things happen and just like, it's oh. unhelpful. Like, like last week, like, you know, it was all part of God's plan. Um, well, that's actually not very helpful to people who things didn't work out the way people often say it when things go wrong, but then they work out, but there are people for whom it doesn't work out. Right. Is that God's plan? You know um, this, this, this whole, everything happens for a reason. God won't put more <laughs> on you than you can handle. Oh, it's okay. They're with God. Now you shouldn't be sad. All this stuff we say, which then just creates shame. Well, I'm actually sad about this. So what do I do with that? So now not only do I have to hide my grief, I have to hide my shame. Uh, and suddenly it's teaching you to like be out of touch with who you are. And it's teaching you to be out of touch with your body and your emotions. And I think healthy spirituality does the opposite. It actually puts you in real communication with who you really are. And it doesn't try to dissect you and bifurcate you and say, well, you're a spirit over here and you're a body over here. No, it tries to integrate. So I think healthy spirituality is fully integrated and it, Mm -hmm. it, it's a thing that's lacking in so many contexts. I think.
0: You just are the much better person to be speaking from the pulpit on this, because you say unhelpful, I say BS. And I get, yeah. I don't necessarily get pushed back, but those phrases have been one of the most powerful things to help grievers disarm. And you're absolutely right. That minimizing in the spiritual realm is this, it's this idea that we are more effective in our ability to celebrate than we are in our ability to mourn. And I have this conversation almost daily just because we recognize that we are in a culture that says we we glorify life we we're pursuing an understanding of the resurrection and everlasting life and all of these concepts that are so lofty and inexplicable quite frankly <laughs> like we mm-hmm. don't actually have the answers or the 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 concrete certainty that we really wish that we had and so you end up with a group of people who are trained to deny death to not Not that I'm like advocating that we should be living in fear of death coming our way, but to your point, you can't minimize your pain. You will physically become this hunched over individual who mentally is out of touch with what is good and what is healthy for you versus what is harmful. Your heart becomes suspicious and confused. Your body is dysfunctional, and your spirit itself is just all over the map looking for whatever feels like comfort. And you we were just talking about a friend's funeral. We attended, and I was struggling because I knew very well. I, I could have written the sermon from the front yeah. for you, and I was sitting in the back, physically shut completely down, right? Arms crossed, eyes practically crossed, legs crossed, just trying not to scream at how much pain was being caused by what this loving human was saying about our friend who had died. Not because it wasn't necessarily like, loving and honoring, but you know what? It was so minimizing and so dismissive of the very real pain and the very unbelievable, just trauma of this young life coming very quickly to an end.
1: I can't, I I wish I could, I cannot remember how many funerals I've done, Mm. but I had, I have started to notice a trend over the years. And that is when I've done funerals for, for families that are more certain about their faith, what they believe, what happens to a person when they die, all of that. Their funerals are much more, um, I'll just say the word hopeless in a sense. Like there's like, they don't know, they have not been taught what to do with this outside of cliche, outside of minimizing it, outside of trying to get past it. And then I've done funerals for people who are agnostic or atheist, and watched a much healthier process because yes, people were grieving, but they were being allowed to grieve, right? There wasn't a, there wasn't a sign being held that said, stop your grief. You, you have to be excited about what comes next. No, no, it was, you're, you're, it's okay. Feel your feelings, grieve, yeah. do that process. That, that, is a, that is a process. And I don't know that it's one, I mean, it changes over time, right? But I mean, we just finished Easter. And one of the things I said on Sunday was, and the Easter stories in the gospels are wildly different. But one of the interesting thing I, I think in, in John's gospel in chapter 20 is that the risen Christ has scars, right? Like we, we, we just kind of have always jumped to, it's all going to be, it's everything's perfect and good. Well, this actually there's scars and there's, and there's scars that there's evidence of what you've been through and yeah that that's, true for every human experience of grief and loss and suffering and I think that the minimizing of that with spiritual platitudes has done more damage to human flourishing for people than actually just sitting down and being angry and weeping and like that I think that actually is ends up being the healthier approach.
0: Yeah. I ended up when my mom passed away in 2016, there was a, it was a whirlwind. There was a lot that shifted. And I knew very early in losing her that if I didn't choose, like I had this moment of active, I'm going to choose to be all in with my faith and pursue whatever it looks like, or I'm officially done, officially done because I've been connected for so many years to very charismatic Pentecostal churches. And I'd been a student at Well, now since she passed away, I was a student at Bethel worship school and so many different interactive moments, right? Where there should be this radical transformation because of prayer and because of laying on of hands. And it wasn't until, oh my gosh, two years ago, maybe that I realized, whoa, so much of my pain is coming from not laying hands on my mom. The last time I saw her, I wondered in retrospect, looking back at how many times I had beat myself up for letting her die. And that responsibility is so real. When I spoke that aloud, it was sincerely this weight coming off of me, recognizing, holy shit, I've believed such a really weird thing about my faith and my ability and my availability to the spirit, right? To be the vessel. So many things that just And and I told you, I think at the top of this, maybe even off air, like I've been in fairly healthy churches that didn't teach me that. So where did that come from and how, if it's possible that I picked it up, that what kind of things are other grievers carrying when it comes to their faith?
1: Yeah, because the only source of blame when you've been told asking, you know, and I think Jesus meant something else by that, but ask and you shall receive or you know, if you, if you pray for it, you'll get it. Or if you lay hands on them, they'll be healed. Like all of that stuff. If it doesn't happen, you can't blame God. Right. Like in those contexts, like it's not God's fault. It's because you didn't have enough faith.
0: Right.
1: You didn't do that. And, and just the amount of, of, it feels like I'm just beating the drum. The amount of shame we end up putting on ourselves and other people, instead of just being able to confront the realities of life, in all of their pain and agony, but, and just acknowledge these, some, this, this stuff just happens sometimes. It's nobody's fault. It, it just is. And, and then being able to enter into the process of actually feeling your feelings.
0: Yeah. In your own life where you have grieved, where you have worked through all of these different things, what is, one of those resources that you have come back to, or that it, you have found to be so meaningful when you are wrestling over and over again, I'm sure, with that reminder that, like, there's not a meaning in my loss. It's not all happening for a purpose. It's okay if this loss feels meaningless, but where do I, how are you solidifying your own just undercurrent of faith? If you've said, like, I don't necessarily need the Bible to do that, I don't need prayer to do that, like, how are you, like, what's your griever's prayer?
1: I mean, it's probably mostly profanity,
0: yes <laughs> to be
1: honest i I think profanity sometimes is the only thing that expresses the true depths of what we're going through um, you know it, it has been an interesting process over the years of just of, of layer by layer <clears throat> being able to see my faith shifted and transformed, so that now in in those entering into those moments um Knowing, sometimes it's all about expectations, right? Like, so when something bad happens now, I know that I didn't cause it and that God didn't cause it. And I mean, I think about the story, and, and, and I'm, I'm a Bible nerd, I'm sorry. You mean, John nine, where Jesus and his disciples see the man who had been born blind, and the disciples say, Who's, whose fault is it? This man or his parents mm-hmm. that he was born blind? Right. And I don't often refer to the message. Uh, it's not my favorite translation or paraphrase, but there's, it's great there because Jesus essentially says back, you're asking the wrong question. There's no one to blame. Yeah. It, it just is. Let's look for what might happen. Let's look, yes. I think in the text, look for what, what God might do. And so, you know, for me now, it is much more centered on, I, I love the Bible, obviously. I talk about it probably too much, but human relationships for me have become such a source of strength and stability just having those people who you know have who care about you and will listen to you and not try to fix you and not try to platitude you but will just process pain with you yeah um knowing that it's okay for me to call a therapist and that actually that might be the most spiritual response to the situation yeah. is to call somebody who can help me wade through all of it and begin to put language on it and maybe find that my language doesn't work so I find somebody else's, right? So, it's, and I think it's always, it's different. It's always ongoing and it's different in, this, in each situation. But I think being able to remove the shame and guilt over whatever happens, it's not, it's not because I'm being punished. It's, it's, it's sometimes, this, this stuff just happens and it sucks. And it's, it's tragic and uh, I wish it weren't the case but what now we have to, we have to process it.
0: Yeah. Gosh, this has been so incredibly grounding. And I hope that everyone listening really feels that authentic depth that's coming out of you that, that is not full of platitudes. And that is not just a formulaic easy way to say, well, this is how this is a better sermon to give about grief in the church because it feels so very um, easy to resonate with. So thank you for taking time. Uh, where can people find you if they're interested in connecting? You're uh, pastoring at Grace Point.
1: Yeah, that's Grace Point with an E on the end. Um, okay. so it's kind of like Grace Pointy uh, in Nashville, <laughs> Tennessee. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Josh underscore A underscore Scott. Um, I have a site and it's uh, that I've I, I say I write on, but I haven't written since February, Um, but it's joshscott.online. So there's a backlog, but the reason I haven't written is I'm writing my first book right now. um, Tell me
0: about it. Say more about that.
1: Uh, It's called Bible stories for (laughs) grownups. And um, I'm essentially going to be looking at six pretty well-known stories from the Bible that aren't stories for kids, even though we've been teaching them to kids. And stories that, you know, as, as I grew up having those like Noah and the Ark and the flood flannel graphed for me. Yes. <laughs> but as I grew up, the interpretation never grew with me. Mm. It, it sort of stayed frozen in that childlike childhood, childish mm. state. So what might it look like to bring the faculties of adulthood and all the things like context and all of that to bear on these stories so that we can have a responsible grown up reading of them? that isn't just grounded in well they either happened or they didn't right. but it might might be grounded in what are they saying do we do we embrace their claim reject their claim whatever but what are they what are they saying and what do, what does it mean for us to be people of faith reading these stories
0: hmm. so, I like I'm excited it. about it That sounds really fascinating. And I'm excited to hear your version versus like Russell Crowe's Hollywood version of Noah. I think this will be a better, maybe a little bit more approachable.
1: Well, Russell Crowe's will be better looking, but (laughs) I hope that this will be a little better theologically grounded.
0: Oh, good. I love it. Well, Josh, thank you so much for making time to be here. I am very honored and grateful that you've taken a little bit of time to pour into this community. And we're looking forward to your book. Yay.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the work you do. It is so vital in the world and you're helping so many people. So thank you.
0: Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Thank you for listening to episode 59 of restorative grief. There's something very meaningful when we recognize that not all things carry meaning. And I know that sounds and feels a little ridiculous, But the reality is that we have done many ridiculous things in the name of faith or believed ridiculous ideas about grief. I hope this conversation helped you release some of the tension you've experienced as a result of grief or a loss of faith, because it certainly threw open a few new doors for me. If this is the first time you've listened to restorative grief, I want to welcome you and say thank you for making time to listen. Please remember to subscribe, leave a review, and consider sharing this episode with someone in your life that is also feeling like a break from the familiar could be just the thing that helps put shame to the side as they heal. And if you're not already aware, you can also become a patron of the show, a subscriber on Anchor, and support us financially so this work can continue because I will again continue to do it but it's a lot more fun to do it with people at my side and one last thing please remember the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving thank you for listening i'll see you next week